This is Audible. Welcome to the audiobook version of Starting Strength Basic Barbell Training, 3rd Edition, by Mark Ripito. Narrated by Mark Ripito. Strength, Why and How Physical strength is the most important thing in life, and this is true whether we want it to be or not. As humanity has developed throughout history, physical strength has become less critical to our daily existence, but no less important to our lives. Our strength, more than any other thing we possess, still determines the quality and the quantity of our time here in these bodies. Whereas previously our physical strength determined how much food we ate and how warm and dry we stayed, it now merely determines how well we function in these new surroundings we've crafted for ourselves as our culture has accumulated over time. But we are still animals. Our physical existence is, in the final analysis, the only one that actually matters. A weak man is not as happy as that same man would be if he were strong. This reality is offensive to some people who would like the intellectual or the spiritual to take precedence. It is indeed instructive to see what happens to these very people as their squat goes up. As the nature of our culture has changed, our relationship with physical activity has changed along with it. We previously were physically strong as a function of our continued existence in a simple physical world. We were adapted to this existence well, since we had no other choice. Those whose strength was adequate to the task of staying alive continued to do so. This shaped our basic physiology and that of all our vertebrate associates on the bushy little tree of life. It remains with us today. The relatively recent innovation known as the division of labor is not so remote that our genetic composition has had time to adapt again. Since most of us now have been freed from the necessity of personally obtaining our subsistence, physical activity is regarded as optional. Indeed it is, from the standpoint of immediate necessity, but the reality of millions of years of adaptation to a ruggedly physical existence will not just go away because desks were invented. Like it or not, we remain the possessors of potentially strong muscle, bone, sinew, and nerve, and these hard-won commodities demand our attention. They were too long in the making to just be ignored, and we do so at our peril. They are the very components of our existence, the quality of which now depends on our conscious, directed effort at giving them the stimulus they need to stay in the condition that is normal to them. Exercise training must be that stimulus, over and above any considerations of performance for sports. Exercise is the stimulus that returns our bodies to the conditions for which they were designed. Humans are not physically normal in the absence of hard physical effort. Exercise is not a thing we do to fix a problem. It is a thing we must do anyway, a thing without which there will always be problems. Exercise is the thing we must do to replicate the conditions under which our physiology was and still is adapted, the conditions under which we are physically normal. In other words, exercise is substitute caveman activity, the thing we need to make our bodies, and in fact our minds, normal in the 21st century. And merely normal for most worthwhile humans is not good enough. An athlete's decision to begin a strength training program may be motivated by a desire to join a team sport that requires it, or it may be for more personal reasons. Many individuals feel that their strength is inadequate or could be improved beyond what it is and without the carrot of team membership. It is for those people who find themselves in this position that this book is intended. Why Barbells? Training for strength is as old as civilization itself. 
The Greek tale of Milo serves to date the antiquity of an interest in physical development and an understanding of the process by which it is acquired. Milo is said to have lifted a calf every day, and he grew stronger as the calf grew larger. The progressive nature of strength development was known thousands of years ago, but only recently, in terms of the scope of history, has the problem of how to best facilitate progressive resistance training been tackled by technology. Among the first tools developed to practice resistance training was the barbell, a long metal shaft with some type of weight on each end. The earliest barbells used globes or spheres for weight, which could be adjusted for balance and load by filling them with sand or shot. Dave Willoughby's superb book, The Super Athletes, details the history of weightlifting and the equipment that made it possible. But in a development unforeseen by Mr. Willoughby, things changed rapidly in the mid-1970s. A gentleman named Arthur Jones invented a type of exercise equipment that revolutionized resistance exercise. Unfortunately, not all revolutions are universally productive. Nautilus utilized the principle, he called it, of variable resistance which claimed to take advantage of the fact that different parts of the range of motion of each limb were stronger than others. A machine was designed for each limb or body part, and a cam was incorporated into the chain attached to the weight stack that varied the resistance against the joint during the movement. Machines were designed to be used in a specific order, one after another without a pause between sets, since different body parts were being worked consecutively. And the central idea, from at least a commercial standpoint, was that if enough machines, each working a separate body part, were added together in a circuit, the entire body was being trained. The machines were exceptionally well-made and handsome, and soon most gyms had the obligatory, very expensive 12-station Nautilus circuit. Exercise machines were nothing new. Most high schools had a universal gladiator multi-station unit, and leg extensions and lat pull-downs were familiar to everyone who trained with weights. The difference was the marketing behind the new Nautilus equipment. Nautilus touted the total body effect of the complete circuit, something that had never before been emphasized. We were treated to a series of before and after ads featuring a man by the name of Casey Viator, an individual who had apparently gained a considerable amount of weight using only Nautilus equipment. Missing from the ads was the information that Mr. Viator was regaining size he had previously acquired through more conventional methods as an experienced bodybuilder using barbells. Jones even went so far as to claim that strength could be attained on Nautilus and transferred to complicated movement patterns like the Olympic lifts without having to do the lifts with heavy weights, a thing which flies in the face of exercise theory and practical experience. But the momentum had been established, and Nautilus became a huge commercial success. Equipment like it remains the modern standard in commercial exercise facilities all over the world. The primary reason for this was that Nautilus equipment allowed the health club, at the time known as the health spa industry, to offer to the general public a thing which had been previously unavailable. Prior to the invention of Nautilus, if a member wanted to train hard in a more elaborate way than universal equipment permitted, he had to learn how to use barbells. Someone had to teach him this. Moreover, someone had to teach the health spa staff how to teach this. Such professional education was, and still is, time-consuming and not widely available. But with Nautilus equipment, a minimum wage employee could be taught very quickly how to use the whole circuit, ostensibly providing a total body workout with very little invested in employee education. Furthermore, the entire circuit could be performed in about 30 minutes, thus decreasing member time on the exercise floor, increasing traffic capacity in the club, 
and maximizing sales exposure to more traffic. Nautilus equipment quite literally made the existence of the modern health club possible. The problem, of course, is that machine-based training did not work as it was advertised. It was almost impossible to gain muscular body weight doing a circuit on machines. People who were trying to do so would train faithfully for months without gaining any significant muscular weight at all. When they switched to barbell training, a miraculous thing would happen. They would immediately gain, within a week, more weight than they had gained in the entire time they had fought with the 12-station Nautilus circuit. The reason that isolated body part training on machines doesn't work is the same reason that barbells work so well, better than any other tools we can use to gain strength. The human body functions as a complete system. It works that way, and it likes to be trained that way. It doesn't like to be separated into its constituent components and then have those components exercised separately since the strength obtained from training will not be utilized in this way. The general pattern of strength acquisition must be the same as that in which the strength will be used. The nervous system controls the muscles, and the relationship between them is referred to as neuromuscular, when strength is acquired in ways that do not correspond to the patterns in which it is intended to actually be used, the neuromuscular aspects of training have not been considered. Neuromuscular specificity is an unfortunate reality, and exercise programs must respect this principle the same way they respect the law of gravity. Barbells and the primary exercises we use them to do are far superior to any other training tools that have ever been devised. Properly performed, full range of motion barbell exercises are essentially the functional expression of human skeletal and muscular anatomy under a load. Exercise is controlled by and the result of each trainee's particular movement patterns when a barbell is used, minutely fine-tuned by each individual limb length, muscular attachment position, strength level, flexibility, and neuromuscular efficiency. Balance between all the muscles involved in the movement is inherent in the exercise, since all the muscles involved contribute their anatomically determined share of the work. Muscles move the joints between the bones, which transfer the force to the load. And the way this is done is a function of the design of the system. When that system is used in the manner of its design, it functions optimally, and training should follow this design. Barbells allow weight to be moved in exactly the way the body is designed to move it, since every aspect of the movement is determined by the body. Machines, on the other hand, force the body to move the weight according to the design of the machine. This places some rather serious limitations on the ability of the exercise to meet the specific needs of the athlete. For instance, there is no way for a human being to utilize the quadriceps muscles in isolation from the hamstrings in any movement pattern that exists independently of a machine designed for this purpose. No natural movement can be performed that does this. Quadriceps and hamstrings always function together at the same time to balance the forces on either side of the knee. Since they always work together, why should they be exercised separately? Because somebody invented a machine that lets us do this? Even machines that allow multiple joints to be worked at the same time are less than optimal, since the pattern of the movement through space is determined by the machine, not the individual biomechanics of the human using it. Barbells permit the minute adjustments during the movement that allow individual anthropometry to be expressed. Furthermore, barbells require the individual to make these adjustments and any other adjustments that might be necessary to retain control over the movement of the weight. 
This aspect of exercise cannot be overstated. The control of the bar and the balance and coordination demanded of the trainee are unique to barbell exercise and completely absent in machine-based training. You can fall down with a barbell. And if you don't fall down with the barbell, then a task has been performed that cannot be performed with an exercise machine you cannot fall down using, obviously. Since every aspect of the movement of the load is controlled by the trainee, every aspect of that movement is being trained. There are other benefits as well. All of the exercises described in this book involve varying degrees of skeletal loading. After all, the bones are what ultimately support the weight on the bar. Bone is living, stress-responsive tissue, just like muscle, ligament, tendon, skin, nerve, and brain. It adapts to stress just like any other living tissue and becomes denser and harder in response to heavier weight. This aspect of barbell training is very important to older trainees and women whose bone density is a major factor in continued health. And barbells are very economical to use. In practical terms, five or six very functional weight rooms in which can be done literally hundreds of different exercises can be built for the cost of one circuit of any brand of modern exercise machine. Even if cost is not a factor, utility should be. In an institutional situation, the number of people training at any given time per dollar spent equipping them might be an important consideration in deciding which type of equipment to buy. The correct decision about this may directly affect the quality of your training experience. The only problem with barbell training is the fact that the vast, overwhelming majority of people don't know how to do it correctly. This is sufficiently serious and legitimate a concern as to justifiably discourage many people from training with barbells in the absence of a way to learn how. This book is my humble attempt to address this problem. This method of teaching the barbell exercises has been developed over 40 years in the commercial fitness industry, the tiny part of it that remains in the hands of individuals committed to results, honesty about what works, and the time-honored principles of biological science. I hope it works as well for you as it has for me. The Squat The squat has been the most important, yet most poorly understood exercise in the training arsenal for a very long time. The full range of motion exercise known as the squat is the single most useful exercise in the weight room and our most valuable tool for building strength, power, and size. The squat is literally the only exercise in the entire repertoire of weighted human movement that allows the direct training of the complex movement pattern known as hip drive, the active recruitment of the muscles of the posterior chain. The term posterior chain refers to the muscles that produce hip extension, the straightening out of the hip joint from its flexed or bent position in the bottom of the squat. These muscle groups, also referred to as the hip extensors, are the hamstrings, the glutes, and the adductors, the groin muscles. Also added to that list could very well be the lower back muscles, the spinal erectors, that facilitate a rigid lower back through which hip drive is transferred to the load. Because these important muscles contribute to jumping, pulling, pushing, and anything else involving the lower body, we want them strong. The best way to get them strong is to squat. And if you are to squat correctly, you must use hip drive, which is best thought of as a shoving up of the sacral area of the lower back, the area right above your butt. Every time you use this motion to propel yourself out of the bottom of the squat, you train the muscles in the posterior chain. 
All styles of squatting tend to make the quad sore, more so than any of the other muscles in the movement. This soreness occurs because the quads are the only knee extensor group, while the hip extensors consist of three muscle groups, hamstrings, glutes, and adductors. They comprise more potential muscle mass to spread the work across, if they are trained correctly. Given this anatomical situation, we want to squat in a way that maximizes the use of all the muscle that can be potentially brought into the exercise and thus be strengthened by it. So we need a way to squat that involves the posterior muscle mass, making it operate up to its potential for contributing to strength and power. The low bar, as it's called, back squat, is that way. Done correctly, the squat is the best exercise in the weight room that trains the recruitment of the entire posterior chain in a way that is progressively improvable. These are the things that make the squat the best exercise you can do with barbells and, by extension, the best strength exercise there is. The squat trains the posterior chain muscles more effectively than any other movement that uses them because none of the other movements involve enough range of motion to use them all at the same time, and none of the other movements train this long range of motion by preceding their concentric or shortening contraction with an eccentric or lengthening contraction, which produces a stretch-shortening cycle, or the stretch reflex. The squat's stretch-shortening cycle is important for three reasons. One, the stretch reflex stores energy in the viscoelastic components of the muscles and fascia, and this energy gets used at the turnaround out of the bottom. Two, the stretch tells the neuromuscular system that a contraction, a concentric contraction, is about to follow. This signal results in more contractile units firing more efficiently, enabling you to generate more force than would be possible without the stretch reflex. And three, because this particular loaded stretch is provided by the lowering phase of the squat, which uses all of the muscles of the posterior chain over their full range of motion, the subsequent contraction recruits many more motor units that would be recruited in a different exercise. The conventional deadlift, for example, uses the hamstrings and glutes, but it leaves out much of the adductor's function. It starts with a concentric contraction in which the hips start out well above the level of a deep squat. No bounce, shorter range of motion, but very hard anyway. Harder, in fact, than squatting due to the comparatively inefficient nature of the dead stop start, yet not as useful to overall strength development. Plyometric jumps can be deep enough and might employ the requisite stretch reflex provided by the drop, but they are not incrementally increasable the way a loaded barbell exercise is. They could be damn tough on the feet and knees for novices, and they are not weight-bearing in the sense that the whole skeleton is loaded with a bar on the shoulders. In contrast, the squat uses all the posterior chain muscles, uses the full range of motion of the hips and knees, has the stretch-shortening cycle inherent in the movement, and can be performed by anybody who can sit down in a chair because we have very light bars that can be increased in weight by very small increments. The term posterior chain obviously refers to the anatomical position of these muscular components. It also indicates the nature of the problems most people experience under the bar, trying to improve their efficiency while squatting. Humans are bipedal creatures with prehensile hands and opposable thumbs, a configuration that has profoundly affected our perception as well as our posture. We are used to doing things with our hands in a position where our eyes can see them, and we are therefore set up to think about things done with our hands. We are not used to thinking about our nether regions, at least not those unrelated to toilet functions. The backside of your head, torso, and legs are seldom the focus of your attention unless they hurt, and they remain visually unobservable even with a mirror. The parts you can see in the mirror the arms, 
chest and abs, and the quads and calves if you're wearing shorts, always end up being the favorite things for most people to train. They are also the easiest parts to learn how to train because they involve or are facilitated by the use of our hands. And we are very handsy creatures. The hard parts to train correctly are the ones you can't see. The posterior chain is the most important component of the musculature that directly contributes to gross movement of the body as well as being the source of whole body power. The posterior chain is also the hardest part to learn how to use correctly. This would be easier if you didn't have any hands. How would you pick up a table without the ability to grab the edge of the thing and lift it? Well, you'd get under it and raise it with your upper back or squat down and drive up with your hips against the undersurface of it or lie down on your back and drive it up with your feet because those would be the only options open to you. But your hands shift your focus away from these options and enable you to avoid thinking about them at all. So posterior chain matters remain largely unexplored by most people, and this makes their correct use a rather groundbreaking experience. You'll find that the posterior aspects of squatting and pulling present the most persistent problems, requiring the greatest amount of outside input from coaches and training partners, and will be the first aspects of form to deteriorate in the absence of outside reinforcement. For coaches, the posterior chain is the hardest part of the musculature to understand, to explain, and to influence, but it is also the most critical aspect of human movement from the perspective of athletic performance, and the mastery of its lore can determine the difference between an effective coach and a slightly more than passive observer, between an effective athlete and one who merely moves. Much is made of core strength, and fortunes have uh, unfortunately been made selling new ways to train the core muscles. A correct squat perfectly balances all of the forces around the knees and hips, using these muscles in exactly the way the skeletal biomechanics are designed for them to be used over their full range of motion. The postural muscles of the lower back, the upper back, the abdominals and lateral trunk muscles, the coastal ribcage muscles, and even the shoulders and arms are used isometrically. Their static contraction supports the trunk and transfers kinetic power from the primary force-generating muscle groups to the bar. The trunk muscles function as the transmission, while the hips and legs are the engine. Notice that the core of the body is at the center of the squat that the muscles get smaller the further away from the core they are, and that the squat trains them in exactly this priority. Balance is provided by the interaction of the postural muscles with the hips and legs, starting on the ground at the feet and proceeding up to the bar. Balance is controlled by a massive amount of central nervous system activity under the conscious direction of the athlete's mind. In addition, the systemic nature of the movement when done with heavy weights produces hormonal responses that affect the entire body. So not only is the core strengthened, but it is strengthened in the context of a total physical and mental experience. The squat is poorly understood because it involves the use of many muscles, more than most people realize. And most of the people who don't understand it have never done it correctly themselves. This means that they can't appreciate the true nature of the movement and the interactions of all the muscles functioning in a coordinated manner. Since to truly understand a thing, you must experience it personally. The more people who learn to squat correctly, the more people there will be who understand the squat. And then, like ripples in a pond, knowledge and strength will spread. And this process starts here with you. Loaded Human Movement A basic understanding of the nature of loaded human movement, the ways that the skeletal system translates the force of muscle contraction into movement as the body interacts with its environment, is essential to understanding barbell training. 
A few simple lessons which can be learned through observing the squat are equally applicable to all other barbell exercises. The most basic of observations is that when a barbell is loaded, the force that provides the weight of the barbell is gravity. And gravity always, everywhere, every time, operates in a straight, perpendicular line to the surface of the earth. Gravity is generated by mass. In this particular case, we're concerned with the mass of the planet, which has conveniently organized itself into the general shape of a sphere, ignoring minor surface features like mountains and valleys, under the influence of this gravity. So, the surface of the Earth is assumed to be horizontal for this definition. After all, a rock dropped on the side of a hill still falls in the direction we define as straight down. This fact has yet to be disputed, and the principle has risen to the status of physical law. There are no known examples of unimpeded objects falling in a path described as non-vertical. The force of gravity acting on the bar is always acting straight down in a vertical line. Therefore, the most efficient way to oppose this force is by acting on it vertically as well. So not only is a straight line the shortest distance between two points, but a straight vertical line is also the most efficient bar path for a barbell moving through space in a gravitational framework. In fact, the work done on a loaded barbell must be analyzed on the basis of this framework. Work is defined as the amount of force, the influence which causes a change in motion or shape, multiplied by the distance the barbell moves. Pounds on the bar being a unit of force, work can be expressed in foot-pounds. But since gravity operates in only one direction, straight down, the work done against gravity consists of only the distance the barbell moves vertically. Any other motion imparted to the bar, for example, horizontal motion, in a direction either forward or back relative to the lifter, cannot be considered work against gravity, although force will be utilized when the motion is produced. Rolling the barbell around the room constitutes work against gravity only if the elevation of the barbell from the floor changes, because gravity influences the mass of the barbell in only one direction, down. Next, when a barbell is supported by a human body, the lifter and the barbell must be considered as a system for any analysis that applies to their combined mass. The center of mass, abbreviated COM, of the human body in the standing normal anatomical position is a point about the middle of the hips, approximately level with the sacrum three or four centimeters anterior to the sacrum. When you squat down below parallel, the geometry of the system changes to place the center of mass in the air somewhere between your thighs and your torso. The center of mass of your body is not an organ. It is not a place in your body. It is a calculation of the location of the averaged center of your body's mass, and this position changes with the configuration in which you place your body. The center of mass of the loaded bar, in contrast, is in the middle of the bar on your back. So the lifter-barbell system, if we consider the lifter and the barbell as two components of a single system, has a center of mass somewhere between these two points. As the weight of the bar increases, the system's center of mass moves closer to the bar until, at very heavy weights, the barbell itself approximates very closely the whole system's center of mass. For practical purposes, we will assume that the barbell will be loaded with heavy weights and that the barbell is usually the object that we must be concerned with balancing as we move it through the range of motion of the exercise. 
Notice that in figure 2-5 in the book, a dashed line illustrates the vertical relationship between the barbell on the back and the middle of the foot against the floor. It should be intuitively obvious that the lifter barbell system will be in balance when it is directly over the middle of the foot, with the midfoot position right under the arch of the foot being the point of interaction with the ground that is the furthest away from both the forward and rearward edges of contact. Very simply, the midfoot is exactly halfway between either end of the sole of the shoe. It is therefore the most stable position, the one which would take the most movement to disrupt, and therefore the one naturally favored by the body, loaded or not. The heavier the weight on the bar, the more precisely the bar position calibrates to the midfoot. In other words, at light weights, where the mass is primarily that of the body itself, the bar may be forward of the midfoot in a position of stability, and as the weight increases, the bar comes into balance more directly over the midfoot. The body prefers stability to pretty much everything else. For example, the ankle joint, the actual point of rotation, is behind the midfoot, and the calf muscles attach at the heel at about the same distance behind the ankle as the midfoot is in front of it. The calf muscles exert tension on the heel behind the ankle to counter the effects of the leverage between the ankle and the midfoot. The body selects the midfoot as the balance point by inclining the shins and doing the calf work necessary to maintain this more stable position. In addition, the gastric nemus, the hamstrings, and the quadriceps all cross the knee joints, stabilizing the position of the knees relative to the ankles. And the hips are embedded in a web of muscle, tendon, and ligament that permits the upright body to squat down under a load and maintain a position of balance over the midfoot. Consider the unloaded lifter. If you stand up straight with your hands on your hips and lean forward even a little, you can feel the weight shift to the balls of your feet and feel the increased tension in your calves as you apply some force to the mass of your body above your feet to keep from falling forward. If you lean back, you can feel the shift onto your heels. Lean back far enough and you will actually have to hold your arms out in front of you to change your center of mass as it's configured so that you don't fall backwards. See, our bodies have evolved to move forward, and forward imbalances are actually more naturally handled by our anatomy. We're anterior creatures. You settle into a position of balance when the greatest amount of force is needed to perturb the position, or when the least amount of force is needed to maintain the position. When you stand, this position is where your center of mass is over the midfoot. And when you squat down and stand back up, your body's center of mass is in balance when it travels in a vertical line directly over this point. Since you will do most barbell exercises, except the bench press, while standing on your feet, this midfoot balance point becomes a critically important concept in the analysis of good exercise technique. Let's assume that the bar on your back in a squat weighs 315 pounds. Were the bar forward of this balance point, it would still weigh 315, but the effort required to move it through its range of motion would be greater. The eccentric and concentric work done on the 315 would be harder due to the bad leverage position generated by the distance the bar was out of balance and the isometric stress of stabilizing the load in the bad leverage position adds quite significantly to the effort. Keeping the 315-pound bar directly over the midfoot through the complete range of motion constitutes the most efficient way the work should be done during the lift. When the bar is off balance, the added energy you must expend due to the leverage of the off-balance load makes 315 much harder to lift than it would were it in balance. It doesn't take much of an imbalance for the leverage to increase to the point 
where the rep is missed. Imagine the bar on your back in a position 12 inches in front of the midfoot as you try to squat. Why, this is an awkward position with even 30% of your one rep max, and the heavier the weight gets, the smaller the imbalance you can tolerate. You can easily see that this continuum ends up with essentially zero amount of deviation tolerable at one rep max loads. This concept applies to every barbell exercise where the load must be balanced. So, good technique in barbell training is easily and understandably defined as the ability of the lifter to keep the bar vertically aligned with the balance point. The ability to maintain this balanced relationship between the bar and the ground is one of the many things trained with barbells that are not trained with other exercise methods. Since balance is an important characteristic of most human physical endeavors, this is one more reason to base your training on barbell exercises. Now let's discuss the angles we use to analyze the movement of the body under the bar during the squat. The hip angle is the angle formed by the femur and the plane of the torso. Even though the spine is curved, when held in the correct position to bear the weight under the bar, it is held rigid during the squat so that we can use the concept of the plane of the torso to describe the mechanical behavior of the segment under the bar. The knee angle is formed by the femur and the tibia, effectively illustrating the relationship between the thigh and the shank, as the lower leg segment is called. And the back angle is formed by the plane of the torso and the floor, which is assumed to be horizontal, which is level, perpendicular to the force of gravity. These angles describe the relationships of their constituent segments to each other under the load of the barbell. The back angle is said to either be more vertical or more horizontal. While we describe the knee and the hip angles as either more open or more closed. Control of the position of these angles depends on the muscles operating the bones that form the angles. We know that the lifter barbell system will be in balance when the bar is directly over the middle of the foot, and the heavier the bar, the more precisely this position must be kept. Even if the weight is light enough to remain in a position of imbalance, the lifter will expend more energy than he would if the bar were in balance. If the bar is on the front of the shoulders, as in a front squat, this bar position will require a very vertical back angle if the bar is to be kept over the midfoot. Think about the knee angle made necessary by this position. It is very closed. And notice the hip angle in a front squat. It is much more open than it would be with a more horizontal back angle as we would see in a normal squat. In this front squat position, the hamstrings are shortened because their proximal attachments on the pelvis and their distal attachments at the knee are about as close together as they can be at the bottom of a squat. Here, the hamstrings are functioning isometrically to hold the torso in the nearly vertical position required of the front squat, a much easier position to hold than a more horizontal back angle because of the reduced leverage against the hips. Much more on this will be discussed later. But when the hamstrings are shortened, there is not enough contractile capacity left to contribute much to hip extension. In essence, the hamstrings are already contracted in the bottom of the front squat and can't contract much more. This leaves the glutes and the adductors on their own to produce hip extension. And this is why your butt gets sore when you front squat heavy. It's having to do all the work that the hamstrings normally help with in a squat. The upshot of this situation is that the front squat doesn't load the hamstrings much. And we'd like to load the hamstrings when we squat so that we can get them strong. The front squat is therefore a poor choice for training the posterior chain. 
to best recruit the hamstrings and let them contribute the most they can to hip extension, we need to use a squat form that produces a more closed hip angle and a more open knee angle. At the bottom of this squat, the hamstrings are contracted isometrically. That is, they are stretched out proximally by the attachments at the pelvis, even as they are shortened distally because of the flexing knees. As the knees and hips extend during the ascent from the bottom, the hamstrings have to work hard to maintain tension on the pelvis and to control the effects of the increased leverage demands of the more horizontal back angle. The back angle largely determines the hip angle, and the back angle enables the hamstrings to contribute more force to the squat. And when we use that more horizontal back angle, the bar must be placed on the back such that the bar is over the middle of the foot. The lower the bar is on the back, the more horizontal the back angle can be. The bar should therefore be in the lowest secure position it can occupy on the back, which is right below the spine of the scapula. That bump on your shoulder blade you can feel when you reach across and touch the back of your shoulder toward the outside edge. Any lower than this and the bar scoots down a little each rep of the set. This is the lowest stable position that you can hold the bar during a set of five squats. If the adductors, the groin muscles, get their share of the load too, that also adds muscle mass to the exercise. When we use a moderate stance with shoulder width heels, toes pointed out at about 30 degrees, and knees shoved out so that the thighs stay parallel to the feet, then the groin muscles stretch out as the hips are lowered. If the muscles are stretched out, then they are in a position that they must be in to contract and contribute force to the hip extension. The muscles that hold the knees out, the external rotators of the hip, are engaged as well, thus adding to the muscle mass involved in the squat. The low bar squat, or in this book just the squat, is not the same form used by suit and wraps equipped power lifters who are trying to get the most out of the squat suit, an expensive, very tight singlet that is designed to resist hip flexion and store elastic energy in the eccentric phase, and therefore aid in hip extension. These are legal meets in some federations. To this end, some power lifters use a very wide stance, and as vertical a shin position, and as vertical a back angle as they can manage. Some lifters use a high bar position with low elbows and an upward eye gaze, quite different from the style used in this book. A wide stance and vertical shins open the knee angle and leave the back angle more vertical, a completely different approach to the squat than that advocated here. Knee wraps are used to resist knee flexion, and like the squat suit, they store elastic energy during the eccentric phase. Our stance, which is not nearly as wide, permits more forward travel of the knees and more use of the quadriceps. In fact, every aspect of the technique used in our version of the squat has been chosen specifically to maximize the amount of muscle mass and the range of motion used so that we can lift as much weight as possible through that range of motion and thus get stronger. If the bar is placed high on the back, on top of the traps, where most people start off carrying it because it's easier and it's more obvious for place for the bar, the back angle must accommodate the higher position by becoming more vertical to keep the bar over the midfoot. If the back angle is more vertical, the knee angle must be more closed because the knees get shoved forward when the hips open up. In other words, the higher bar position makes the back squat more like a front squat. And we don't want to front squat for general strength development because it doesn't effectively train the source of whole body power, the posterior chain. The high bar or Olympic squat has been the preferred form of the exercise for Olympic weightlifters for decades. This seems to be largely a matter of tradition and inertia 
since there are compelling reasons for weightlifters to use the low bar position too. Since the squat is not a contested lift in Olympic weightlifting, and since Olympic lifters front squat to directly reinforce the squat clean anyway as a lift in their training, the reasons for weightlifters to use the low bar squat in training must involve other considerations. The squat makes you strong, and weightlifting is a strength sport. Even if it is terribly dependent on technique, the winner is still the one who lifts the most weight. The high bar position looks more like a front squat, that's true, but the low bar position uses more muscle, allows more weight to be lifted, and consequently prepares the lifter for heavier weights. If an argument on the basis of specificity is to be made, the low bar squat is also more applicable to the mechanics of Olympic weightlifting than the high bar squat. The low bar position, with the weight sitting just below the spine of the scapula, much more closely approximates the mechanics of the position in which the bar is pulled off the floor. As the discussion of pulling mechanics in the deadlift and power clean chapters illustrate, the shoulders are just in front of the bar when it leaves the floor in a heavy pull, and they stay there until the bar rises well above the knees. This is true for both the clean and the snatch, with the snatch being done from a position even less similar to the Olympic squat than the clean is. Low bar squats done with this similar, relatively horizontal back angle train the movement pattern more directly than does the high bar version, which places the back at a more vertical angle due to the higher position of the bar on the traps. And they do it through a nice long range of motion due to the fact that the squat goes into a deeper hip position than the start position of either the snatch or the clean and jerk. If the back angle is similar for both the low bar squat and the pull from the floor, they are very similar movements, more similar than a high bar squat and a pull of any type. If an argument is to be made for squatting with a form specific to the motor pathway requirements of the sport, the low bar position would be that form. And if an argument is to be made that the squat need not be similar, the low bar squat still makes more sense because it can be done with heavier weights. Squat depth, safety, and importance. The full squat is the preferred lower body exercise for safety as well as for athletic strength. The squat, when performed correctly, is not only the safest leg exercise for the knees, but also produces more stable knees than any other exercise for the legs. Correctly is deep, with the hips dropping below the level of the top of the patellas. Correctly is therefore full range of motion. Any squat that is not deep is a partial squat, and partial squats stress the knees and the quadriceps without adequately stressing the glutes, the adductors, or the hamstrings. In full squats, the hamstrings, groin muscles, and glutes come under load as the knees are shoved out, the hips are pushed back, and the back assumes the correct angle on the way down for the hip drive to occur on the way up. At the very bottom of the squat, the hips are in flexion, and the pelvis tilts forward with the torso. In this deep squat position, several muscle groups reach a full stretch. The adductors, which are attached between the medial pelvis and various points along the medial femur, and the glutes and the external rotators, which are attached between the pelvis and the lateral femur. Here, the function of the hamstring muscles, which are attached to the tibia and the ischial tuberosity of the pelvis, is primarily isometric since they don't necessarily change length on the way down. And this is why your hamstrings don't get very sore when you squat, even though they're working as hard as the rest of the muscles involved, because soreness comes from the eccentric portion of the work. In the bottom of the squat, the tightened hamstrings and the eccentrically stretched adductors, glutes, and external rotators provide a slight rebound, which will look like a bounce. This is the stretch reflex we discussed earlier. The tension of the stretch pulls backwards on the tibia, balancing the force produced by the anterior quadriceps attachment on the tibial tuberosity. 
The hamstrings finish their job with help from the quads, adductors, and glutes by extending the hips at the top. A partial squat done with an upright torso and vertical back angle is typical of most people's attempts to squat because we've all been told that the back must be vertical to reduce something called shear, which is actually the opposing forces that occur along a segment transmitting rotational force and a perfectly normal force for a segment held at an angle. The shear between the vertebral segments is supposed to somehow disarticulate your spine, despite the fact that this cannot and never has occurred. But in a misinformed effort to protect the back, this advice results in a lot of unnecessary stress on the knees. As we've already discussed, however, the vertical back angle fails to fully load the hamstrings. Therefore, they cannot exert the posterior force needed to oppose and balance the anterior force exerted by the quadriceps and their attachments to the front of the tibia below the knee. In other words, there's no force pulling backwards to balance the forces that are pulling forwards on the tibia. The result is an actual anterior shear on the knee, and like a front squat, the partial squat also forces the knees quite forward of the midfoot much more so than the low bar squat form we will be using, which keeps the knees back and uses the hips as the primary mover of the load. This lack of posterior support produces an anterior dominant force distribution on the knee. The further back the hips are, the more hip muscle you use, and the further forward the knees, the more quad you use. Many cases of patellar tendonitis have been caused by an incorrect squat technique. Even when partial squats are done with the correct back angle, they fail to work the full range of motion and therefore fail to perform to their potential as a strength exercise. The hamstrings benefit from their involvement in the full squat by getting strong in direct proportion to their anatomically proper share of the load in the movement as determined by the mechanics of the movement itself. This fact is often overlooked when the medical community considers anterior cruciate ligament, which are ACL tears, and their relationship to conditioning programs. The ACL stabilizes the knee. It prevents the tibia from sliding forward relative to the femur. As we have already seen, so does the hamstring group of muscles. Underdeveloped weak hamstrings, thus play a role in ACL injuries, and full squats strengthen the hamstrings. In the same way the engaged hamstrings protect the knees during a full squat, hamstrings that are stronger due to full squats can protect the ACLs during the activities that we are squatting to condition for. With strong hamstrings, and the knees back position provided by the low bar version of the squat, the hips bear most of the stress of the movement. So athletes who are missing an ACL can safely squat heavy weights because the ACL is under no stress in a correctly performed full squat. Another problem with partial squats is the fact that very heavy loads can be moved due to the short range of motion and the greater mechanical efficiency of the quarter squat position. A trainee doing quarter squats is predisposed to back injuries as a result of the extreme spinal compressive loading that comes from putting a weight on his back that might be more than three times the weight he can safely handle in a correct deep squat. A lot of football coaches are fond of partial squats, quarter squats even because they allow the coach to claim that their 17-year-old linemen are all squatting, as they say, 600 pounds. Your interest is in getting strong. Well, at least it should be. Not in playing meaningless games with numbers. Keep this in mind. If it's too heavy to squat below parallel, then it's too heavy to have on your back. There is simply no other exercise, and certainly no machine, that produces the level of central nervous system activity 
improved balance and coordination, skeletal loading and bone density enhancement, muscular stimulation and growth, connective tissue stress and strength, psychological demand and toughness, and overall systemic conditioning than the correctly performed full squat. In the absence of an injury that prevents its being performed, everyone who lifts weights should learn to squat correctly. Learning to squat. We will approach the squat in two phases. First, unloaded to solve problems associated with the bottom position, and then loaded to learn how to apply the bottom position to the hip drive used for heavier weights as we come up. Since the majority of the problems with the squat happen at the bottom, this method expedites the process quite effectively. Generating hip drive. We will use a fairly neutral foot placement with the heels about shoulder width apart and the toes pointed out at about 30 degrees. An excessively wide stance causes the adductors to reach the end of their extensibility early and excessive narrowness causes the thighs to jam against the belly. Both of these problems prevent you from reaching proper depth. Shoulder width is proportionate to pelvic width in most people, and experience has shown that this width works well for most of the population. Many people will assume a stance with toes pointed too forward, so you may need to point them out more than you want to. Look down at your feet and make a mental picture of what you see. Now comes the crucial part of learning the movement. You're going to assume the position you will be in at the bottom of a correct squat without the bar. This method works well because you can easily correct any errors in position before the bar adds another variable to the system. And if you've already been in the correct bottom position without the bar, getting into that position again with the bar is much easier. Assume the correct stance and squat down all the way. Don't even think about stopping high. Just go all the way down into the bottom. Sometimes a lack of flexibility or a failure to point your toes out enough will alter your stance on the way down. So make sure you have assumed the correct foot position and that your toe angle has not changed. Next, put your elbows against your knees with the palms of your hands together and shove your knees out. This will usually be a decent bottom position, and if your flexibility is not great, the position will act as a stretch if you maintain it for a few seconds. Remember, proper depth is essential in the squat, and this low bottom position lays the groundwork for your attaining good depth from now on. Stay in the bottom position for a few seconds to allow for some stretching. If you get fatigued by holding the position, your flexibility might not be quite what it should be. Stand up and rest for a few seconds, then go back down to get some more stretching done and to reinforce your familiarity with the bottom position. This is the most important part of learning to squat correctly because good depth is the difference between a squat and a partial squat. Now is the time to notice some important details about the bottom position. Your feet should be flat on the floor. Your knees should be shoved out where they are parallel with your feet in a parallel line with your feet, not outside them, not inside them. And your knees will be just a little in front of your toes for most people. Your back should be as flat as you can get it, but if it's not perfect, we'll fix it later. Also notice that your back is inclined at perhaps a 45 degree angle, not vertical. You may think it's vertical, but it won't be, and it's not supposed to be. In fact, you should initiate this movement by pointing your chest at the floor with your eyes looking down at the floor a few feet in front of you. Nipples point to the floor to establish the back angle. After you've established the correct bottom position, come up by driving your butt straight up in the air. Up, not forward. Up, not backward. Straight up. 
This keeps your weight solidly over the whole foot instead of shifting it to the toes or shifting back onto the heels. Think about a chain hooked up to your hips, pulling you straight up out of the bottom. Don't think about your knees straightening out or your feet pushing into the floor. Don't think about your legs. Don't think about your quads. Just drive your hips up out of the bottom, and the rest will take care of itself. This important point should not be missed. Our previous discussion about hip drive and the use of the hamstrings in the squat applies here. The squat is not a leg press, and the idea of pushing the floor with the feet provides an inadequate signal for the hamstrings, adductors, and glutes to provide their power out of the bottom. Hip extension is the first part of the upward drive out of the bottom, and a more horizontal back angle facilitates hip drive. When you think about raising your